0: Well, we are uh, approaching the end of the year. That means uh, conference play is starting up in Big 12 basketball. The women get underway this weekend. The men start a week from Saturday. So it's time to say hello to, welcome in, and talk to a guy you're going to be hearing a lot from the next uh, two and a half, three months or so. Our lead Big 12 basketball writer, Matthew Poston, is joining us on Heartland College Sports. I'm Pete Mundo. All right, Matthew, let's start with the men. Um, You and I were talking before we got this conversation going. The men's schedule is kind of just blah until conference play starts on Saturday the 6th. So where are you at right now? When you look at the Big 12 from a men's basketball perspective, that upper echelon, has it changed for you at all over the last few weeks? And if so, how?
1: I I don't think it's really changed that much. I mean, you have really half a dozen teams that I feel like are kind of on that top tier as far as the conference goes with, I think probably Kansas and Houston being a notch above the rest of them, which would be Baylor, BYU, Texas, and Oklahoma. Um, You know, right now to me, Houston seems like they've made the easiest transition of the four new schools into the conference. People kind of forget that, they were in the final four with Baylor and Gonzaga and UCLA a couple of years ago. So they've been kind of built for this the last Mm -hmm. couple of years, and they're already playing defense like a big 12 school. So I think their transition into big 12 play is going to be the easiest of the four. But again, they haven't played a full high major conference schedule like Kansas and Texas and Oklahoma have. So that's going to be the big adjustment for them. As far as you know, as far as Kansas goes, they've played the traditional Kansas schedule where they play several ranked and/or quad one teams. But the interesting part of it is, Houston actually has more quad one victories than Kansas right now, four to three. That's not a big difference, but I don't think there's a big difference between those two teams right now. And I think once they finally get the opportunity to play one another uh, in Big Twelve play, I think we're really going to find out you know, just how good Houston is and just how Kansas, how good Kansas is.
0: Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up about Houston. And we've talked about this before. One of the reasons I want no part of Gonzaga in the Big 12 is because I don't think Gonzaga's Gonzaga in the Big 12. I think in the Big 12, if there's 18 conference games, Gonzaga goes 11 and 7, 12 and 6. They're not a top three seed. They're not, you know, as likely to be an elite eight final four team. So I don't think Gonzaga's Gonzaga. Houston, I agree with you. I mean, I think they're well prepared for the Big 12, but you're right in saying, hey, it's one thing to be able to beat Kansas. It's another thing to have a two-month slog of going to Lawrence on a big Monday, coming home for a Saturday game against Baylor, turning around Tuesday and going to Manhattan. I mean, that is much different from... A tough game here or there, like Houston might have dealt with in the AAC. So, how do you think Kelvin Sampson scheduled to handle that and prepared to handle that?
1: Well, I think he's scheduled in a way where he could get some quality quad one games, but like everybody else in the Big Twelve, he gets his what I like to call them happy meal games, where yeah. they get a lot of points and everybody feels good about themselves afterward. He referenced this at Big Twelve Media Day. He said. You know, there would be years he would look at the American Athletic Conference schedule and go, "Okay, there's a night where if we don't play our best, we're okay." Yeah. He said he'd look at the Big 12 schedule and said, there's no night like that in the Big 12. And you and I know this from having been around the conference for a while now. There are no easy nights in this league, no matter whether you're playing the top team or the bottom team in the conference. He knows that going in. So I think he modulated his schedule in a way where he could get his team some quality tests from, uh, you know, schools at the high major level or the mid-major level, but also, you know, got some games in where he could work with rotations, you know, games where he knew he would probably end up winning, but work with his rotations, figure out which eight or nine guys are going to be the guys that are going to help him get through that rigor of conference play. Because you're right, it's incredibly rigorous. It's 18 games in basically a 10-week period. And with no SEC challenge, the one thing they get in return for that is each team gets about a one-week break. Like, they'll go from a Saturday to a Saturday without a game. But you don't mm-hmm. – you don't, you know, those breaks are staggered. But that's going to be the challenge for them and really for the four te- new teams in the conference. They're all going to face that challenge because none of them have played a full, high-major conference schedule over the course of a two, two-and-a-half-month period.
0: So how about Hunter Dickinson? How – I mean, we all knew he was going to be good. We knew he was going to be the center of the offense yeah. for KU. Has his transition even surprised you? Because it kind of feels like he's been under Bill Self's tutelage for two or three years, even though a guy just showed up on campus a couple of months ago.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because it, it does feel like he's been there for a while. And I think it's yeah. it's a combination of one. He's the player they needed. If you look at last year's team, you look at this year's team. They needed that seven-footer inside to make everything work. If you look at the national championship team from a couple of years ago, you've got David McCormick. That really kind of, you know, David wasn't a big-time scorer, but he really kind of helped make things work around the rest of that team. Hunter does the same thing. And then I think part of it is I think Hunter was looking for something from a coaching standpoint, kind of like Kevin McCuller was a couple of years ago when he transferred from Tech to Kansas. He was looking for somebody to help him level up, especially his offensive game, to prepare for the NBA. I think Hunter was looking for the same thing in terms of transferring from Michigan to wherever he would end up. He was looking for someplace that could help him level up. And if you look at his play the first two months, I think he's done that. Kevin McCullough has certainly done that. And they've, they've probably created the best one-two punch in the conference right now just in terms of being able to to score, defend, rebound, and do all those intangible things that can help teams win.
0: Now, there are two ranked teams in the Big 12, Matthew, I think the jury's still out on, and it's Oklahoma and BYU. Um, BYU had that loss to Utah, which, you know, wasn't a very good loss, and they haven't really played anybody since. Oklahoma had its loss against its toughest opponent, UNC. They both are technically one-loss teams. They're in the top 25. What do you think happens with these two teams once we get the conference play?
1: I think it'll be interesting because I think – I watched that Oklahoma North Carolina game and I really liked what I saw from Oklahoma, except for, I really wasn't sure who that guy was. You know, the guy that you need to have to kind of take the big shot at the end of the game. I think it's uh, JV McCollum, but nobody really stepped up in that game, especially late. Yeah. And it made me wonder if the chemistry is still evolving there a little bit. Now they've played quality opponents. They played Arkansas, They've got, I think, three high major wins to this point, so they've challenged themselves in non-conference in a way that I don't think BYU has to this point. I think they're the ones that'll probably have the bigger struggle once they get into Big 12 play like the other four new teams. You know, They just haven't played that level of opponent on a consistent basis. Yeah, they played Gonzaga. They played St. Mary's in the West Coast Conference, but they really haven't played 10 Gonzaga's and 10 St. Mary's in a conference schedule. So they're the ones that I'm a little more concerned about than Oklahoma. Although with Oklahoma, you know, I wonder if, you know, if they don't find that guy who's going to step up and take those big shots late in games, when the game's on the line, you know, it makes me wonder if they take a bit of a nosedive when they get into big 12 play simply because they're at a place where I really wasn't expecting them to be. I did not think they would be this good. At this point in the season, you know, I kind of felt like they were going to be a middle of the road team in the conference and maybe they will be by the time we get to the big 12 tournament, but they've really kind of exceeded my expectations in terms of where I thought they would be and where they are to this point.
0: Yeah. So what team, I mean, when you're looking around this league and there's a lot of teams we haven't even touched on yet, but who's been the biggest surprise of the teams that we have not talked about yet for better or for worse?
1: Oh, that's interesting because um, I think for, for worse, pr- you know, worse is a, a relative term in this yeah. conference because there's only one yes. team that's under 500, and it's the team that I expected, which is West Virginia, and that's just because they've had so many issues off the court with transfers and and, and players like that. If there's one team that has probably fallen a bit below expectations, I would suppose it's probably Kansas State. Again, there's some issues there with Naquan Tomlin not being able to play. They lose Quest Glover for six weeks due to an injury. He's coming back for their game against Chicago State in January. So they'll be as close to full strength as they, they can be going into conference play. So I still think they can be competitive in conference even without Naquan Tomlin. But you know, relative to where I expected them to be, they're probably they're probably the team that's fallen uh below those expectations and yet Kansas states 9 and 3. Yeah. So if you're thinking about the NCAA tournament, they still have every opportunity to get to the NCAA tournament. In terms of teams that we haven't talked about that have kind of exceeded my expectations, I'm not sure what I expected out of Texas Tech, but you know, them being 9 and 2 at this point and having lost Devin Cambridge in the process to a season-ending injury, um, I'm a little bit surprised at where they are with a first year head coach, a lot of new transfers coming in, um, you know, the maturation of pop Isaacs at guard, uh, they're, they're a little bit further ahead than I thought they would be at this point in the season.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I, you know, one team that has kind of been around and has obviously been, uh, a staple, especially come big 12 play is the Iowa state Cyclones. But, uh, you know, I don't know what Iowa state is this year. I, I just, I can't get a read on them. I've only watched a couple of their games. You know, you got to dig deep in ESPN plus to get some of these games, if you can get them at all. So <laughs> as we sit here, is Iowa state a team that you think is kind of sneaky under the radar, or do you think we're looking at a step back for this team this year?
1: I, I'm i kind of bullish on them, honestly, for, for a couple of reasons. One, I think they're a deeper team than they were a year ago, just overall. I mean, they've had a couple of injuries, but Uh, they've got enough depth, I think to withstand those injuries actually three reasons. Number two, Taman Lipsy has really taken a step up in his game last year. He was not a quality three-point shooter. Uh, he was not the kind of guy who was going to go get his shot. He was there to facilitate. He's grown in his game as a sophomore to the point where he's going to get his shot, where he's shooting the three-point at a much better clip than he was a year ago. And third, on top of that, they went out and got players that could help them shoot the three. That's been a real deficiency for them the first two years under T.J. Otzelberger. They have not been a, a quality three-point shooting team, which you have to be in college basketball in order to uh, you know get past the Sweet 16 and get into the Final Four. They've got several guys that can hit that shot this year, and their three-point shooting percentage is up by – 4 or 5% as a team from last year. They've had one guy each of the first two years that could hit a three when they needed it. But now they've got two or three guys that can do that. And that's going to make them a much more dangerous team in Big 12 play to the point where, you know, right now I kind of have them on the second tier of my power rankings. If there's any one team on that tier that can hop up in the next couple of weeks to the first tier, I think they're that team.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, Matthew Poston's Heartland College Sports is joining us here on the show. It's always good to have him on. Uh, Matthew, you mentioned the one team under 500. It is West Virginia. And I'm looking at this team and I'm saying, okay, uh, Raekwon battle comes back. Finally, that drama's over. They lose to Radford last week on a buzzer beater. Josh Eilert stepping in with all this drama following Bob Huggins. I mean, he feels like a dead man walking. I don't want to say that. It's not fair to him. But what is this season for West Virginia, and how does this guy keep his job?
1: Well, first of all, personal opinion, I don't think he keeps his job after the season. Uh, And that's no knock on him. He was handed a really unfortunate situation. Remember, Mm -hmm. go back to June when Bob resigned or got fired, however you want to put it. Yeah, Um, Ren Baker said he was going to do a national search. Within a week, Josh Eilert had the job. And that was because guys were going into the portal and they were hemorrhaging personnel. Josh Eilert's only been an actual coach for one year. I think people need to understand that. He's been with West Virginia for a long time, but he was a video coordinator. He was their director of operations. He was their associate athletic director for operations. But he's, he was only on Bob Huggins' bench full-time for one year before he got this interim coaching job. So he was probably the right guy if you're looking internally for the job because the other assistant coaches were not that experienced themselves. But he's been thrown into a situation where I just don't know that he was totally prepared to handle all this in a perfect world. It hasn't been a perfect world. They lost Omar Silvero to to his transfer waiver, Jose Perez transferred away. Kirk Cresa had a nine game suspension Raekwon battle. As you mentioned, had the waiver imbroglio for over a month. Now they have to find a way to find chemistry with one another right before big 12 play starts. Mm-hmm. And their first game is at Houston, <laughs> which is a team that's undefeated. The only other undefeated team left in the conference. I, I, I just don't know, you know, my read on this team right now is they've got a lot of talent, but they haven't played together enough for me to really believe that they can be any better than a 500 team in conference play, which mm-hmm. if they are, maybe that gets them in the NIT because remember, the first two teams in net rating that don't go to the NCAA tournament out of this conference go to the NIT automatically. So they could end up in in postseason play just because of their net rating if they could win half their league games and they're one of the top two teams in net ratings, if they're not in the NCAA tournament, but I fully expect them to have a full coaching search after the season goes. And that's really not on Josh Eilert. That's just on the circumstances he was thrown into.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. It is uh, unfortunate, but a reality of uh, the college sports world, Matthew, let's spend uh, the last couple of minutes here while we have some time on the women, Uh, four teams sitting undefeated ahead of conference play getting underway this weekend. Uh, What are we looking at here when it comes to the big 12 women's basketball and what the next couple of months are going to look like for those who have not been following along?
1: Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, I think Texas and Baylor were two teams that I think a lot of folks probably would have expected to be undefeated to this point and they play each other on Saturday. So, That's great for the conference. It's great for the visibility. But TCU plays BYU on Saturday. TCU is undefeated with a first-year head coach. BYU comes in. I think that's a really interesting game because both of those teams are looking to make a statement their first league game of the season. And then West Virginia, the other undefeated team, they're going to Kansas. Uh, And Kansas is a team that has struggled a little bit. But they've also played probably the toughest schedule of any Big 12 team in non-conference. That game's also interesting because uh, Brandon Schneider, who's the Kansas coach, and Mark Kellogg, who was the West Virginia coach, they coached against one another in the 2010 Division II National Championship game. Uh, Kellogg was at Fort Lewis. Schneider was at Emporia State. Uh, Schneider's Emporia State Hornets won that game. Schneider got the job at Stephen F. Austin, which is where I'm at tonight. I'm in Nacogdoches, Texas. After Schneider took the job at Kansas, Kellogg succeeded him and then took the job Mm -hmm. at West Virginia. So they know each other very well, and their teams play very similar styles. And if you're thinking about the pecking order in this conference right now, I, I really believe Texas, Baylor, and Kansas State are the three best teams. And then there's a big fight as to who the fourth best team would be, which would be the top four seeds in the Big 12 tournament. In March, Kansas is among those teams that I think could be there. West Virginia is among those teams. TCU is among those teams. So the first Saturday is really interesting because you're going to start seeing some of these teams start to separate from one another. You know, Texas and Baylor are undefeated. One of them is going to have a loss by the end of Saturday. TCU could have a loss by the end of Saturday. Um, Kansas State goes to Cincinnati. I expect them to win. But we're going to start seeing separation. In some of these teams, but I I really expect those three teams, Texas, Baylor and Kansas State to be among the top four seeds when we get to Kansas City
0: in March. You know, and you led right into where I was going here and I don't care if I'm beating a dead horse, but um, (laughs) I this league made an enormous mistake. I know it's not the people in charge right now. It predated them. Uh, They made an enormous mistake breaking up these two tournaments because you're right. I mean, it is going to be a great year for Big 12 women's basketball. You've got five teams ranked in the top 25 right now. And I'm predicting it. T-Mobile Center in Kansas City is going to be pretty dead for the women's tournament. And uh, that's unfortunate because a lot of people are going to have to pick. Do I go to the men's? Do I go to the women's? What do I do? How do I make this work? And I just think that's a shame because there is some damn good women's basketball going on this season.
1: Yeah. And Bill Fenley kind of talked about that at the tournament in March. Um, for those that aren't familiar for the last few years, both tournaments have been in Kansas city. Uh, concurrently, the women have been at the municipal auditorium. The men have been at T-Mobile. Um, the, the conference made the decision a few years ago to move the women to T-Mobile and have it before the men's tournament And the idea was to put both tournaments on equal footing, which I agree with. Um, The problem with that is, as you mentioned, and as Bill alluded to as well, you have fan bases that are going to have to decide, do I go to the women's tournament or do I go to the men's tournament? And the really odd thing about the schedule is with the women's tournament starting on Thursday, there's a day off on Sunday, which I don't really understand because there's like games Thursday, Friday, Saturday, then there's a day off on Sunday that the semifinals are on Monday, Tuesday, the first two men's games are played followed by the women's championship game. So logistically, you know, you're talking about nine or 10 days in Kansas city, which very few people can do. I can't even do that. And I'm supposed to be covering the darn thing. Um, You know, I would have liked to have seen them find a way to have both tournaments in T-Mobile concurrently, which I think you and I talked about last year. It's possible. Other tournaments do this. The WAC does this out in Las Vegas. They have the women's and the men's on differing days over the course of a whole week where, you know, you don't have to decide between the men and the women. You can go to both. Um, We'll see how it goes the first year, but I, I, I worry about the turnout for the women's tournament for that reason. You've got to decide between one or the other, and you're going to have your diehard women's fans that are going to go to those women's games, but not go to the men. And the same thing goes with the men's tournament. You're going to have those diehard men's fans that don't go to the women's tournament who might otherwise go if they're concurrent at the same time, even if they are in different arenas. And it's a shame. I hope that we'll see what happens this first year. Maybe that changes the mind of the conference, but it's going to be even harder the following year when you consider it's going to be, I would assume, a 16-team tournament for men and for women logistically, it'll be even more difficult to have them at the same time.
0: You're absolutely right. Well, we'll leave it there. Conference plays around the corner. He's Matthew Postens. I'm Pete Mundo. Uh, you're the man, Matthew. It is going to get real busy, real fast around here. We'll be following along at heartlandcollegesports.com. We appreciate you.
1: No problem. My gingerbread martini. There he
0: is. Cheers to his gingerbread martini. Make sure you're signed up and uh, hit the thumbs up if you're on YouTube. That helps us out. Subscribe to the channel as well. On the podcast, leave that five-star rating and review. We appreciate you doing that before you sign out. And the Heartland College Sports Message Boards are open. They're free and it's a great way to interact with the entire Heartland College sports staff. We appreciate you. Have a great rest of the day. We'll talk to you soon at heartlandcollegesports.com.